to the North Group. Security, refined by intelligence. We're here to spotlight the best practices and critical safety and security issues in today's world and provide actionable strategies that you can implement into your day-to-day -day operations. From the individual to organizational level, our goal is to improve your risk management and response capabilities. Thanks for spending time with us today, and here's your host. Good morning, everybody. We've got uh, Michael Rosen on uh, TNG Podcast here. Uh, this is going to be an awesome episode. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Mike Rosen with Rosen Security. Um, Mike is a friend and a, and a colleague in the industry and somebody who we all look up to. Um, so we're going to get right into it. Um, Mike, do me a favor and introduce yourself to the audience, please. Hi, Steve uh, and everyone on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity and I was uh, very much looking forward to this. Uh, my name is Michael Rosen. I am uh, uh, president of uh, Rosen Security Consulting. Yeah, so I'm honored to be here. Just so everybody's aware, uh, yesterday was Mike's birthday. So happy. <laughs> I, know, I know I got you on social media, but and, and just so you know, Mike's the only guy I know that ran 20 miles on his birthday. <laughs> Thank you so much, too. <laughs> you got to make those birthdays count. <laughs> He's a warrior. I'm, I'm going to think about running 20 miles on my next birthday. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's the attitude. <clears throat> Mike, do me a favor and, and really – uh, and, and don't be too humble because you're probably one of the most humble guys I know, but really tell us about your background because I, I know, uh, I know once, once we got to know each other, it was just super impressive where you've been, what you've done, where you've come from. So just do me a favor and just dive into that. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit of my uh, life story. Um, so I, I was actually originally born in uh, uh, Belarus. And uh, at the time, Soviet Union was there. And uh, uh, I lived there until I was uh, 10, 11 years old. And ultimately, I moved to Israel, Belarus. You know, I was a Jewish kid. Growing up as a Jewish kid in Belarus was uh, uh, you know, a little adverse and not, uh, not very friendly. I remember the first day in my classroom where you know, I was the only Jewish kid in the classroom. And you know, the, the teacher reads our names. And uh, you have to raise your hand and say, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, you're there. And, uh, you know, they get to my last name, Rosen, of course, it's a very Jewish last name. I raise my hand, say I'm here, and the entire classroom goes, ha, 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 you know, here's the Jew. And from that point on, it was on kind of thing. It was, you know, um, there were so many people that wanted to kick my butt that I think they had to take turns, uh, had to schedule themselves because they couldn't fit in the breaks in between. But uh, it was basically a nonstop kind of like that experience for uh, my first, you know, five years of school in Belarus before we moved uh, with my family. And, uh, you know, I think um, later, I think we're going to talk about behavior detection. And, and I think uh, part of my upbringings had a lot to do with, um, with, uh, with me naturally being intuitive and interested in other people and kind of predict their actions before they act. Uh, but I was not uh, smart enough to run away from all those confrontations, I guess, at the time. And so it was, it was uh, uh, quite uncomfortable first 10 years, 11 years there. But from there, I moved to uh, eventually Israel. Uh, in Israel, I uh, uh, joined the Israel Defense Forces uh, when it came my time. And I, uh, I served in a, a unit called Barkan or Stinger. 
It's a special operations unit within Israel Defense Forces. Um, uh, it was uh, interesting, you know, and 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 uh, rewarding experience, you know, being able to be on the front line of defending uh, the state of Israel, defending my family, defending my friends. Um, it was very uh, real, very very tangible function that we perform. Um, uh, after my service in a, uh, in a Israel Defense Forces, I joined, um, I started working as a security agent at uh, Ben Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv under the oversight of Israel security agency, Shin Bet. Shin Bet in Israel, it's, uh, um, for those who don't know, it's a, a little bit of a equivalent, uh, maybe a combination. It performs the functions of what here would be uh, agencies like Secret Service, FBI, NSA, FPS. Uh, in Israel, it's done under one umbrella. Uh, and the national security uh, agency is called uh, Shinbet, or Israel Security Agency. Uh, I work for our uh, protective division of Israel Security Agency, assigned as a security agent at our airport, Ben Gurion National Airport in Tel Aviv. Um, and you know, in essence, the work in Tel Aviv uh, airport uh, kind of framed the rest of my career because uh, the knowledge and experience that it gave me was kind of the, the 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 reason for all the next phases in my life. Um, after my work for uh, Israeli government, I uh, find myself completely logically uh, in the middle of the winter in Minnesota, <laughs> uh, where I've still been questioning this whole idea, you know, <laughs> when it's come to, you know, like a negative 20 degrees in the winter, I still question, what have I done? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been uh, also a fun ride. I first um, uh, started working as a consultant with uh, Mall of America, uh, the largest shopping mall, as you know it, in, in the United States. Um, and the company that owns the Triple Five, they had a few other uh, establishments of just that nature. And uh, it was the right time when I started working with uh, the Mall of America. I later became a security manager at Mall of America. Uh, it was the right time uh, because Mall of America was just looking to innovate uh, because of some of the severity of the type of threats they started experiencing. And they were concerned that, uh, you know, they were not doing enough, right? They wanted to get ahead of a potential problem. They don't, they did not want to be another target of a disaster and catastrophe like 9-11 was. Um, and so they, you know, they, they thought, what could they do, right? And what could they do differently uh, in an environment as challenging as Mall of America was, which was open to the public, you know, 30 to 40,000 people is a slow day. You know, over 200,000 people could be a busy day in Mall of America. Uh, with with uh, you know events happening every single day, amusement park, and you name it. It's not a typical mall in essence. It's an attraction. It's an entertainment complex. It's a symbolic venue because of its name. It's uh, all what we stand for. The you know the uh, the, the the capitalism at its core, right? It's kind of like displayed through Mall of America. So there's multiple venues and and. Uh, my work at Mall of America, it was you know it would give me the opportunity to take the methods. Uh, that we have used in Israel for um, over 30 years at that time, uh, 40 years, and apply them and develop them uh, uh, in an um, environment like Mall of America, right? The, I quickly learned that uh, some of the practices we use in Israeli government systems uh, cannot be completely replicated, in, uh, cannot be replicated in the United States, and definitely cannot be replicated in a private setting like uh, Mall of America, where the rules, regulations, expectations, the, the, the contextual norm of everything is so much different. But yet, the principles that uh, I was taught and used so well, I think, and so effectively while, while working in Israel, 
worked and they work so well. And so I took the principles and I started developing them and, and testing them out. And I was able to put together with the help of a number of colleagues and my partners from uh, Mall of America and local law enforcement agencies and FBI, able to put together a program at uh, Mall of America that um, uh, it's a behavior detection program, develop a unit stands for RAM risk assessment and mitigation. It's still active and very successful until today. Um, and that unit and the work it performed, it proved itself quite effective in relatively short amount of time because uh, it was able to identify and intervene and prevent potentially you know, very disastrous events that could have transpired there, which of course attracted the attention of local law enforcement agencies, of intelligence community. And so I started working closer with um, agencies like the FBI and, 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 and others. And, and from there, uh, you know, they started inviting me to speak to different events. And I wonder why they do that. You know, there's a guy with a bad accent, <laughs> can hardly speak English, and yet they invite me right, to, to, to speak to public. I said, you know, guy, guys, you sure? I, I haven't suggested they put some subtitles from time to time. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, uh, they did, and uh, from that kind of mode, you know, people start reaching out, other organizations, other municipalities, other law enforcement agencies, asking for advice, asking for training, um, and, um, you know, I, I, at first I opened the company, right? Uh, Rosen security consulting, just because, you know, FBI was bringing me here and there and that resulted sometimes in people wanting me to pay, to pay me some money. So I figured I better have some name out there registered, uh, in the state of Minnesota that will justify that additional side income. And that's how Rosen security consulting happened to be. And just a year after doing that, it got so busy. That was the, uh, 2011 that I decided in 2012 to jump in full force in this world of running and operating your own business and have been in it ever since. And it's been the most invigorating, the most fun, the most challenging uh, now eight years of my life, but I love every single minute of it. Um, and I can tell you a little bit more about it as we I think, uh, unfold this. But uh, in addition to uh, operating Rosen Security Consulting, I am uh, also an instructor, I, I teach I'm a, a course director today at the University of Minnesota. I teach at Masters of Science and Security Technologies program. I teach a course dedicated to uh, applying the security methods uh, in, in, in a wide area of environments using the psychology as a, uh, a, as a way to create an effective security program, conducting risk assessments, uh, managing risk, and truly giving students a very practical experience uh, rather than a completely academic experience. Uh, I'm also a special deputy with Hennepin County Sheriff's Office here in Minnesota. Uh, I am also an instructor with uh, Krav Maga, Krav Maga Worldwide, where I teach Krav Maga every so often, and I uh, volunteer a few other places. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell, so to speak, uh, a little bit about me. Yeah, very, very impressive. So, I, I mean, coming from one of the most pre premier national security agencies early on in your career, I mean, um, some of the folks that I've met from both law enforcement, the, the intelligence community, uh, the counterterrorism community from your country are, are literally some of the best in the business. You, you guys... I mean, God bless you guys. You guys do so much risk risk mitigation um, in a world that's on fire all around you. So, I mean, hats off there, right? Uh, nothing but some of the best professionals I've ever met in my life have come out of your guys' uh, communities. Um, so, Thank you. 
and thanks for all your service there and and thanks for bringing all that experience here to america um <clears throat> and i mean you're a patriot you you are truly an american patriot now i i uh i mean we have some great conversations and and everybody that knows you says the same thing so thanks for that um tell me a little bit about you know, you've got, you've got two very unique programs. So you go into this entrepreneurial role, uh, you take an expertise like a lot of us have and, and you, and you build a business, never expecting it to get where it's got, but you didn't just build a consultancy. You've built an RMR model. I mean, you've built a, you've built training packages that, that really have made a difference in our national security. Um, so do me a favor, talk about, uh, Syra and talk about tips, if you will, um, whatever one you want to cover down on first. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And, you know, I have to say, um, United States, I, of course, I, you know, I, Israel it will always be part of my DNA and, you know, I, I, I love and support Israel with, uh, with everything I have. And when I got to the United States, right, this, this is, a. a um, a new discovery for me, and I love this country. I really do. It's, I think, the freedom here, the what it stands for. It's, it's truly unbelievable. And I think, you know, for me, maybe uh, because I lived in a number of different countries where you did not have that, do not have that freedom, you cannot, you do not have this opportunity, do not have that liberty to do, you know, what you want to do and achieve your potential. Right? It's, you know, I think people that ha don't have that experience, I think it's a little, it's a little too too easy, too fast to complain, but really United States is a great, fantastic place to be. I love it and I'm uh, certainly uh, uh, humbled and honored that I can be uh, proud of it and I'll call myself a United States citizen. Um, so thank you for that. Now, um, uh, you know, SIRA, right, stands for Suspicion Indicators Recognition Assessment. And it's in essence, the reason why I'm in the business. Um, you know, and I'll explain you uh, all the mechanics, but I have to say, right, what you know, it's nothing more rewarding. You know, this is a program that, that is geared towards preventing violence, preventing planned act of violence and, and stopping aggressors before they're able to do what they do. And, and you know, there, there's a lot of like, you, you, you can do a lot of theoretical stuff in life, but, you know, sometimes in our world, right, security, as you know, not many times it's rewarding because sometimes because of things you do, right, and, and you're doing well, you don't get to experience the the satisfaction of right the your work, um, and uh, you know I I have to say I'm blessed and I you know I, I I maybe I'm I'm lucky and this is really why we're all in the business and very motivated in my team to do what we do is really because of the Syra program at at the end of the day because our clients uh, a number of them call us. And it's those calls that you get every so often that makes your day, it makes your ear sometimes. When you have a client calls you back and, and, and you know, is crying on the phone and is telling you how appreciative they are because this program saved lives. It identified the aggressor. It, it helped him prevent the attack. It opened a counterterrorism investigation. It put real bad guys behind bars. Um, and, you know, that's really what this is all about. This is why we're, you know, working around the clock, you know, uh, really to make this work. So um, what is this, right? What is Syrah uh, first, right? So the, the, the principles, right, of um, Syrah come from uh, over 40 years of uh, um, field work and, and uh, air and trials 
uh, from the Israeli government, right? In Israel, you mentioned right earlier that we, uh, you say we are one of the best in the, in the industry, and thank you for that. And I think, you know, um, for us, it is the, the threat from the very, in Israel, from the very beginning of the time that Israel became a country, right? This, the threats, the, the, the very existential threats, threats of existence, have been part of uh, our life. And so when, uh, you know, when there's no, as I always say, right, there's no option for you to fail. When a failure is not an option, it is amazing how good you can become at something. Um, and, you know, that's really kind of how, why, why, why uh, we are prompted to innovate and, and uh, research and, and um, approach security a little differently. So Syra is, is, a, is a concept that allows trained security professionals, trained law enforcement professionals to uh, proactively uh, identify potential threat actors, uh, assess them as such, intervene, uh, and ultimately mitigate plan acts. Uh, and you know, it's a combination. The skills that you are learning through Syra is the process of recognition, recognition of uh, potential threat elements in a wide different area of environment, uh, whether it's uh, uh, open environments like an airport, uh, sport games, mass transit, uh, or a little more controlled environment like an office building, a school setting, um, uh, more protected facilities like oil refineries, uh, energy sector, and more. And, uh, and the idea is you are taught, you know, security professionals are taught how to recognize proactively indicators of someone intending to cause uh, harm. They're able to effectively assess and discern those that pose a threat versus those that do not. Um, uh, and, and from there, apply the right, the right action. One of the most effective parts of the CIRA program is that it makes a security operation highly dynamic because it builds hunters. Uh, once instituted, the, the trained personnel are motivated, they're eager, and the, the mechanism behind it forces the security personnel to actively hunt. It's, uh, it's kind of like, um, I, I compared it, if you think about a secret service, professionals who are protecting uh, uh, their, their, their protectees, their, their, their assets as event or venue, uh, whatever they might be, and they're actively hunting, right? They're actively searching and hunting for any cue that someone in the audience or next to the might be potential threat actor. Uh, it's that kind of mindset that Syra creates, but it makes it a permanent mindset. So you act not only when you're at this venue or this event or the high-risk situation, but you hunt literally all the time while you're on duty. And that kind of hunting makes it very effective. Second thing that, it, that Syra does it, we teach this process of threat assessment through conversation, right? We call this process security interview. And it's a very friendly, polite, professional, very sharp interaction that is highly effective. And it's a nightmare on steroids for individuals that have something to hide right then and there. Because the questions are, are well, they are friendly and playful and nice, but they are going to the core of your intent so quick and they're so effective that uh, they, they make the person who does not, even if you do expect, but they do not expect it, makes it very difficult to survive this interview if you're planning to carry a malicious act. I just know from sitting on the other side of a table when we first met with you that it is intimidating. I don't get intimidated, but it is intimidating. <laughs> the, 
practically questioned by Mike Rosen. Just just so our listeners are aware, if you get the opportunity, put yourself through it. I'm sorry, Mike. I just had to add that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sorry. No, my intention was not <laughs> to intimidate on that. Uh, it, was a, it was a great meeting at that. <laughs> but we get to the core of it pretty quick, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so the the uh, that's the that's a very effective part of this of this process is this conversation, and you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, systems out there and programs and training that talk about recognition of suspicion indicators, recognition of uh, things in the field. Uh, you know, recognizing indicators on the field, right, uh, with a little bit of experience and know-how, it's not really a rocket science, right? Most people can do it. Um, most people that are interested in doing it can do it. Uh, but the question is rather what those, those indicators, right? Without, without context behind it, sometimes could mean nothing or many times could be overacted for no reason. It's what you do with those indicators. How do you assess them? How do you do it in a short amount of time? And how do you uh, uh, act properly to address the relevant, the relevant risk in front of you? You know, it's kind of like re- eliminate this, uh, same security for all type of strategy. It's a risk-based approach, right? Where people that pose low to no risk, right? There is no reason, right? To conduct uh, extensive or more security scrutiny on them. But those that display indicators of potential risk, they deserve a lot more focus on uh, and, and a lot more uh, effort. So um, uh, that's, that's a little bit of sire, right? It's, it's, a, um, it's a training program that over the years we have uh, packaged specific training courses uh, geared for law enforcement, for special operations units within law enforcement, for Department of Defense and military units as they're being deployed to uh, hostile environments, uh, uh, programs geared specifically for those applications, program geared for protective needs of both uh, law enforcement and military uh, units. We have a specific program geared towards uh, suicide bombers that teaches uh, law enforcement organizations uh, how to structure teams that are capable of uh, recognizing and acting and mitigating effectively uh, potential suicide bomber uh, threats, as well as we have a program for private sector, a uh, program for uh, corporate security organizations, for um, uh, security corporations that protect a variety of different assets. Um, and so we have different level of programs. We're able to license some of these programs for private sector partners. Um, and so that's, that's uh, we, a little bit of Syrah, we also offer now very regular trainer trainer courses where we certify a number of instructors. We I look at here um, at the list, kind of preparing for this podcast, and we have thousands. We have thousands of people that we have certified at this point. It's really a miracle. Um, and you know we have hundreds of instructors throughout the world spread out. We have qualified instructors teaching our program uh, in Asia, in India, uh, in, in in Greece, in uh, France, and in UK. Uh, in the United States, um, so it's really uh, the concept has been growing significantly here over the years. So that's that's a little bit of Syra. Yeah, um, and and just just for our listeners, right? Um, you know, my my intent it's a time thing. My intents to go through this. My intents to have our staff go through this. If you're in the industry, I mean, everything I've heard and those I've talked to that have been through it just just have told me. I mean, it it really, especially if you're if you're a tactician or a practitioner in this industry, it really opens your mind further. So let's, let's talk about, about evaluating threats because this is something like I'm super excited about because I know that you eat, breathe, and sleep this. 
and I don't think, you know, to me, passion drives results more than experience, right? If you're passionate about, you know, finding a thread, if you're passionate about that. And, and I think, you know, one thing with listeners, you know, and, and practitioners in our industry, whether they're EP agents, whether they're secret service agents, whether they're criminal investigators, I, I think the thing is, you know, a lot of people's interest is we have a passion to be here. We have a passion to uh, get that 2 a.m. phone call and respond to a threat. Uh, we love that. I know you love that. I'm, I'm the same way. I love that. Talk to me about evaluating a threat. So, I mean, client calls, let, let's, let's stick with the high net worth client, right? Because uh, I, I think a lot of people, or the corporate client, and there's an active threat towards their ecosystem. I mean, talk me through the steps, Mike. Talk me through how does, how does, how does your firm evaluate that? I mean, give, give me kind of the down and dirty. Yeah, uh, thank you. So, you know, we, we have spent, um, our company has spent a significant amount of our time. You know, I think you probably will question us about, you know, uh, those guys are not quite with it, but we spend a lot of our time studying bad guys. Uh, we do. We, you know, every uh, uh, new case of interest that perks up, we research it, we analyze it, we dissect it. We, um, whenever we can, we're trying to get down to a level, get to as close as we can to the perpetrator. Uh, whether we're talking to their lawyer, we're talking to the agent that handled the case. Um, sometimes we're trying to get to the actual perpetrator and have a conversation with him or her. Um, and, and so we are really dissecting because, you know, I think the... Um, we, the way we look at it, and I'll tell you a little bit about our methodology. We have developed our own methodology, how we approach uh, and tackle the threat assessment process. But I, I, I discovered that, you know, hypothetical thinking is nice and hy hypothesis is a good thing, right? It, it kind of creates new ideas. It makes you think outside the box. But it's the practical application of this that makes all the difference. And the practicality of it comes from the bad guys, right? I mean, we are in a business to try to uh, you know, uh, predict bad guys uh, and, and threat assessment is an intelligence-based guess at the best, right? And so we're trying to narrow this gap, right? Uh, narrow this gap by uh, going back, right? And identifying trends that we can rely on. And we can say, you know, after looking at those hundred threat actors, we see the same exact thing happening over and over and over again, right? And we ask the questions, like, why is this happening, right? Why do those 100 plus perpetrators have to do the exact same thing over and over and over again before they care to act? Is that because, um, is that because there's some sort of like uh, uh, a common understanding of, you know, of the things you say, the things you do before you care to act? Is it, um, uh, or is it because of the necessity? And, and generally when we are able to categorize people by their profiles, right? What kind of profile this person fits, and the kind of action they're there to commit, and what are the common steps, the common, the common things that transpire when you are a certain profile committed to a certain type of action. Uh, those trends is what we use when we evaluate uh, threats. So um, our predictions, right? And again, it's a guess, right? So anyone who does threat assessments out there and tells you that they know exactly <laughs> and precisely to, uh, that they can, you know, they can say, you know, this is going to be a high threat, low threat individual. You know, uh, anyone that claims any kind of 100% of any threat assessment thing is, um, is uh, you know, maybe overstating at best and, uh, you know, or just simply 
simply um, not telling the truth because the, the threat assessment at its core is a guess. It's an intelligence-based guess. It's always easy to look back. In hindsight, it's 2020, always. But uh, look forward is a bit different. Um, so, you know, the, the process that we apply is we look at the profile of, of our potential target, right? The, the client. What is the target profile? What is the level of attractiveness to this target profile? Who, what is the threat actor? When we know of a specific threat actor that makes our job easier, when we don't know, we try to predict who are the threat actors that are mostly attracted to this type of profile. We take a look at, uh, at specific intention and operational capability that these threat actors might have demonstrated in the past. And then we associate with the trends that we have seen, uh, that we learned firsthand from the bad guys. And, and compare it to what has been seen here. And we have our own both qualitative and kind of quantitative system that helps our clients visualize where they are at on, a, on our prediction scale. And we always are very careful to say that this is a prediction, right? We, and predictions are, are at, you know, got to take them for what they are. And so you always want to caution on the side of safety um, in, in that regard. But a combination of those factors is we develop our own kind of proprietary uh, methodology that we use to to predict uh, threats against individuals versus organizations. The organizational threat assessment is a little different. Yeah, absolutely. It's just fascinating. I, I can talk for hours on this. It's just, it's kind of, you know, it's, uh, yeah. again, it's, it's passion, right? It's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a problem to solve. Um, what you know i mean we're we're in a dynamic landscape right now the threat landscape for our potential customers mutually is just unique and we've had these conversations about you know different opportunities that we've worked on together in in, in whether it's workplace whether it's high net worth what you know i've got my thoughts on this um but what are your what is your assessment right now of what are our potential clients uh threat landscape what are they facing you know both on the on the corporate side the enterprise side but the private high net worth side the family office side because uh, I don't think and this is just me throwing this out there I don't think there's a disconnect between threats I think there's there's a connection between the threat matrix that are that are that are existent right now but what is your assessment of that and I know I know landscapes have changed but kind of let our listeners understand what what we're seeing from from the high level perspective i think when we're looking at the current threat landscape um it is important to kind of qual classify maybe uh pre covid 19 and uh and the current covid 19 era and then there's a reason for that right um you know so the the threads that existed right when it, when we've taken a look at organizations uh from a business standpoint uh, you know, of course, different organizations have different level of threats. The common threats that we see when it comes to violence, of course, we always had that threat of idiosyncratic motivated type attacks. Uh, we have seen an unprecedented spike in workplace violence cases, right, that, that have been uh, raging through this country, right? Um, we have seen also a prison spike in active shooting incidents uh, when it comes to uh, educational institutions, businesses, mass gatherings for n numerous of idiosyncratic reasons. Uh, you know, the threat of terrorism, right? Has, it, it has not gone away, right? Uh, it's very much here. And we, this country has to be very grateful and appreciative of what the federal government is doing day to day because, you know, some of my friends and colleagues at the Bureau are heroes. They're literally heroes. They're stopping and saving American lives every day. 
uh, every day. Because, you know, the, the damage that the self-proclaimed, as they call them, self-proclaimed Islamic State was able to do is, you know, one of their probably long-lasting impacts, but not everyone is talking about it. It's less about the territorial control in Iraq and Syria. It's more about the brand and the power, the power behind the brand they were able to establish and the motivation behind it and the drive that uh, makes people who have, they don't even know how to spell Islamic State, uh, within a week or two are able to take a gun or a knife or try to construct a small explosive device and try to go and kill people because they now find uh, the power, right? And they find association and affiliation with this message that uh, the story that the self-proclaimed Islamic State sends. And, you know, my, my personal perception, like the, the, the self-proclaimed Islamic State, the, the leaders behind it, they are cowards, cowards who, you know, lost their sense of humanity. And of course, it's easy, right, to, to, to put others to a task um, and, uh, and, and try to carry the act. Um, but I, I think we should not dismiss that. We should not forget that this threat is very, very real. And the spikes in, uh, in a number of cases that the federal government is handling over the last couple of years, when it comes to terrorism landscape, is also unprecedented to this country. Um, yeah, you know, just to add to that, right, we were... Uh... Our, our CEO and I were talking this morning, you know, and he's a retired career, you know, CT guy, spent his entire career chasing down AQ and, and things like that. And we were talking about Pensacola um, and how all this information's coming out, um, you know, uh, with the connection between the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and, and, and the shooter and, and AQ from the region and all that. You know, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, Daesh, I won't even call him, you know, ISIL, I'll call them Daesh, but um, you know, they, uh, they, they are the they are the epitome of of you know they they just radicalized from afar, but they they won't fight our forces head on. You know, I, I will say, you know, I'll I'll, I'll give the re, the warrior respect to Al Qaeda and the Taliban. I mean, they'll they'll face us on the battlefield. You know, Daesh won't. They won't. They, they run like cowards. They're not even warriors. They, they won't even. So I think that that is a great threat we face. And I, and I think we've lost focus as, as individual Americans, right, on that that threat still exists, that the radicalization, the rumors and echoes of the radicalization occurring two, three years ago, there are still people that haven't stepped out of radicalization, became operational yet, but they do have the potential to go operational any day. Exactly. Yeah. And so let me kind of unpack it from a standpoint of what happens now in this COVID-19 era, right? Um, from a threat standpoint, like if we break down by those threat actors, right, we have, let's, let's focus on those three main categories of threat actors and how that relates to organizations and high net worth uh, individuals. So on one side, we have criminals. We have what are called idiosyncratic threat actors. Uh, individuals that carry attacks for any variety of personal reasons. That's majority of active shooting incidents in the United States that, that come from. And then you have motivated, radicalized, inspired by terrorism, propaganda, uh, homegrown violent extremists on, on one side, on, on the other side. So kind of zero in those three general buckets, right? Uh, HVEs, homegrown violent extremists, idiosyncratic threat actors, and criminals. Now, uh, starting kind of from the wars, I think the... Uh, it, you know, we have seen already the the messaging, the kind of pivot, and what's happening just through 
uh, a number of communication channels um, that the the terrorist perpetrators, especially right, the the cowarded Daesh, as as we call them, you know, they they um, they see that right now the West, United States, the West, they are especially fragile because of the COVID nineteen, right, the economy of United States, the economy of the West is in its, the, the, the economy blanket, so to speak, is, is very fragile. Uh, and, and, you know, it doesn't take much now, not only to break the economy, but I think, and uh, during those, those, those uncertain, it's the uncertainty that creates this fragility, but during those uncertain time, it's, it's not taking too much to create more havoc and further break the overall society and the structure. And I, I'm, I'm generally concerned that they will attempt to leverage this in one shape and form, right? This um, economic uncertainty and un, unpredictability. Um, can you imagine, right, a series of attacks at that time with a proper political and ideological focus? That could be devastating to this country. It could be absolutely devastating uh, if, you, if you know how to play the right uh, political extremes. Uh, along with that, it could be devastating. It could be devastating to the West. And I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid that, and I hope that they are not able to organize, they're not able to carry it, and the intelligence community continues to perform as they are. But I don't doubt, I don't doubt for a second that they are sitting there and contemplating uh, what and how they can uh, capitalize on this current situation that the West is struggling with. How can they take advantage of that? I have no doubt that they're sitting and contemplating, and if not, or to put some plans in action of, of what to do with that. So it's a serious, it's a serious prospect, and we got to think about it from that standpoint. The second uh, threat actor in this post-COVID-19 era is the idiosyncratic threat actors, the individuals that carry attacks for personal agreements. There too, I am very concerned, you know, of um, of what happens, of what happens next. Uh, because, um, you know, all of this, because of the situation, a lot of people are losing their jobs. You know, we see an unemployment rate going up every day. Uh, some companies are closing and even after we start reopening, uh, you know, it's not certain, right? How quickly the economy will bounce back. It's not certain how many jobs will, uh, pop up again. And because of that, because of this uncertainty, though that it poses a lot of stress on individuals. Uh, add to that, right? The all the you know this this the COVID nineteen crisis, of course, got politicized heavily uh, in the United States and other countries. And now you have extremes on both sides, the right and the left, that are keep fueling this. Media does not help this at all. All those factors create additional stressors and additional motivators for people uh, to carry those acts of violence. And so I think what we have seen before COVID nineteen. I think it's going to get multiplied significantly after, as we start going back to semi-normal and operating. People that lost their jobs, people that uh, have seen this crisis as some political conspiracy, people that uh, see this left or right, people that are emotionally now unstable because of the situation. We're bound to see more issues. That, that is no doubt in my mind. Um, and the third notion there of criminals, you know, every time the, you know, the, 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 economy is down, right? And uh, um, the crime opportunities, right? The crime, the crime grows, right? So that's, it's, a, it's, it's always a, 
of the match. So I, I have no doubt that the crime will keep growing. Now, when it comes to specifically the one aspect that I haven't mentioned is the, the uh, high net worth individuals, um, especially those individuals in high net worth that have, uh, they're not only high net worth, but they have a high public profile. They are publicly recognized. I think those individuals, um, my suggestion is to, to now is a good time to take a close and uh, some proactive look at their security posture because as the more things are, are getting uncertain and the more idiosyncratic threat actors, as they call them, uh, become motivated to carry acts, many times, right, the source of money, right, the source of uh, potential, like, you know, it's, it's there, those people fault, become the high net worth, high profile individual. So that's, um, that's my perception. So yeah, the uh, the the threats facing the high net worth, I I totally concur with what you're saying there. I think that, um, you know what what we're calling a, um, you know self risk assessment. Everybody should be self risk assessing right now. I I think that uncertainty drives chaos, right? And and chaos breeds uh, a type of person that will do just about anything and it drives those three threat actors that you just talked about to to not only desperation but advantage um i think another thing too right mental health uh we've been talking about the workplace violence spike when we go back to work when all the states turn back on now you've got you know bob who doesn't want to be on the factory floor he's been getting paid for two months and now he's being told he's got to go back and exactly nuts and bolts on the cars over here at the assembly plant and uh and bob's been drinking for months bob bob doesn't want to quit drinking i mean it takes it takes 15 days to get a drinking problem consistently right um yeah. oh, it takes 10 days to get addicted to to hard drugs um and then it takes you know 40 to 60 days to go into rehab uh so you know i mean we'll the effects of mental health, uh, how do you feel that that's going to start affecting, you know, our corporate clients that, that we service, right? And, and the workplace violence issues that we respond to. Yeah. And that's, that's, again, that's a very good point, uh, Steve. Uh, uh, I, I totally see, uh, I'm completely in line with you. And I think when I say that I expect a potential increase in those idiosyncratic threat actor motivated activities, that's exactly what I refer to is um, uh, people in the workplace, that's a good example, people distraught by the situation, um, people mental health being impacted, people uh, perceived sense of stability uh, being impacted, which uh, will cause, and that definitely will cause a turbulence, and turbulence causes uh, those chaotic kind of actions um, that we see materializing. So the, the, that's a very serious uh, proposition. I think, uh, you know, next year, right, as schools and universities get to reopen, uh, you know, the summer could be very turbulent for many families who lost their jobs, who uh, their economic situation has downgraded. And as we start returning back to schools, um, and in addition to stressors, the typical stressors from schools, the typical mental health problems that we see that many times cause those mass acts of violence, uh, that additional COVID-19 related problems will only exaggerate and, ex and, 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 uh, and make, mm, I think, unfortunately, it will make more problems in our, in our uh, country and our school system as well. How, I mean, how is, uh, 
to digress for a second here, how has COVID affected your business? I'm, I'm guessing the answer is positive than negative. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we've been so busy. Um, we've been very busy, actually. And I think, you know, part of it, you know, the one part of maybe it directly affected is that we, the training, our CIRA training programs, right, that uh, we uh, generally deliver in person, in the classrooms, right, with, you know, we are, because of, you know, the uncertainty of COVID-19 so far, we had to postpone and cancel, uh, push back to the second half of the year. So there was some impact there. Uh, but, on the, um, you know, we, that in some time that forced us a little bit to innovate and, you know, see how we can uh, deliver part of the training remotely, part of the training in person that is still safe for people. So some good come out of it, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, the other side of it is, um, you know, I think the, the consulting side is where we've been really busy. Um, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of companies follow our advice take a proactive action. They want to evaluate their risks right now. They want to commit to protective measures because they also understand that on the end of this COVID-19 problem, there will be an increase, uh, uh, there'll be likely increased uh, security risks. And so because of that, we've been quite busy, both with high net worth individuals and families, uh, with those corporations and government. So when, when you're, you know, the, these customers during this time, right. Um, I, I, I think our listeners, right. Cause I, I know a lot of providers that are just, that are, that are suffering. Right. I mean, we've, we've, we've done fairly, fairly well during this time. Um, like you guys, I mean, we lost, we lost our event work. I mean, that's, that's huge, right. Stadiums, events, all of that. I mean, we, we lost, we lost quite a bit of that. Um, and that, and that, that sucks. But with that, we've gained a lot of other traction in other areas um, on the consultancy side as well. What do you think, you know, with, with our current customer landscape, what are you telling customers um, both on like the stadium side when they open back up? I mean, what risks do they face? I mean, cause you've got, you've got, you've got decontamination. That's going to be a big deal. Um, but you also, I mean, things can't stay closed forever. So as, as we open stadiums back up, as we open, I mean, Las Vegas is huge, right? As we open Las Vegas back up, um, is our security posture going to be diminished because it's not in the forefront of our mind? I think, I think COVID might be a distraction. I don't know. Kind of talk us through that. What do you, what are you thinking? I mean, with sports stadiums, public event spaces, I mean, what does it look like when we open back up from a security posture standpoint? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's a good point you bring in. And I, and I had some conversations with some of uh, our clients, uh, security managers, directors from some, and, and you could tell, right. That right now, of course, the, the number one priority for just about any, which is, <laughs> It's interesting, but security many times is, is find themselves now in a, being the central point for dealing with COVID-19 measures, right? And so the number one priority is, you know, is the masks and PPEs and what and how they do it and the distancing. And, you know, and I, I, I had to, you know, several times here, I had to slow them down a little bit and say, look, I understand, right, everything that you guys are doing here and how important this is for the business to be able to operate in this COVID-19 era. This is no doubt a critical critical uh, uh, for you guys. But, you know, I don't, don't remember the core security uh, uh, reasons you're here. <laughs> uh, because the, the, the threat after 
things start going back to open, I think it will only grow. And I think the events that we're going to see will multiply. My prediction is that the, the security industry will be extremely busy when things start going back to normal. And um, because of that, all my clients are listening to us, to our advice, and we're planning for it now, right? We're putting together measures, right? We're uh, from a, starting with assessment to a very specific uh, program execution. We're putting together measures that, you know, COVID-19 problem aside, that are uh, helping our clients to be uh, prepared to proactively counter more significant issues that are likely to arise as a result of this uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's something we've really got to we've really got to keep an eye on, right? Um, I think that where where there's weaknesses in our in our in our respective planning as a community as a security provider there will be there will be people to take advantage of that Stephen Paddock's a great example of that right I mean he took advantage of placement and access um, to the route 66 you know venue to to uh, pull off his attack and that's a you know that's a that's a great case study for all of us to learn from um, from a risk liability standpoint, what could happen? I mean, MGM just suffered from that, from that ordeal, um, corporately and their stakeholders, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's a big deal. What about, uh, let's, so from, um, from a recommendation standpoint, what, what are we as, you know, industry leaders going to recommend to our clients right now? Um, when it comes to identifying their risk profile, you may have a, you may have an individual, you know, an individual family office. That's a $50 million family office, right? They haven't really thought about this. Maybe they, maybe they struck, you know, um, gold in the market here and, and now they're, and now they're up, you know, 70% and they're, they're a hundred million dollar family office and they really got to start considering their risk profile. What do you recommend to these people to identify, um, what should they be doing? to look at their risk profile and start to understand what, what key steps they can take first. Yeah. So I think the, um, just from experience, I think that you have to, for a, for a client like this, you have to break it down into two, two phases. One phase is take a, a look at the residences, take residences and their families and themselves, because many times we, they, they uh, expose themselves to unnecessary risks by not waiting uh, the people that are closest to them uh, by not committing to uh, disciplined security measures online and social media, uh, by uh, not thinking about security when it comes to their residences and what happens around the residences, inside the residences, by not planning for security risks when it comes to uh, home-related problems. And so I think it's, it's important for them to take a close look at their own personal lives and people that are closest to them that work with them, their staff members, service member, uh, contractors, uh, their children. Children, many times, are one of the biggest vulnerability for those kind of families. And the security of those children, the procedures that the schools deploy, right? The onboarding and outboarding when they're picked up and being dropped, the verification of the students uh, uh, when they leave the, the, the premise of the school. Well, how does that transpire? We find a lot of vulnerability in, in, in those areas. Um, the second one is, of course, take a look at their workspaces and their organizations, right? From the same standpoint, take a look at the target profile, take a look at the existing uh, uh, measures and vulnerabilities that exist and operations, 
policies, procedures, protocols, training, personnel, uh, uh, vulnerabilities that exist in technological measures, right, that, that are supposed to be there or lack of, and physical measures, the physical layout design. We have been approached just over the last several years, several months, we've been really busy in helping companies just like that develop, uh, develop security plans for their residences, upgrade security programs for their corporate offices, uh, and, and, and more. So I think that's the, that's the right kind of, all right, uh, all right thought at this point in time for them, for them to make. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, it's always a pleasure. It, it really is. I, I just, I love talking to you. And when this is all over, we, we just got to get together again and, and, uh, and spend some time, you know, trying to solve absolutely. problems. Do me a favor, tell our listeners how they get in touch with Rosen Security Consulting. Tell them, tell them how they, uh, how they reach you, how they reach the firm. Um, again, <clears throat> if I had to, if I had to recommend a client to another company, you would be the company. So please just mm -hmm. give them your. Thank company. you very much for that. Sir. Yeah, and I, you know, I apologize. I talk too much. Time run out. I know we didn't get to uh, talk uh, more about uh, behavior analysis uh, and how this really plays out on the field and tips and more. And uh, maybe we'll do uh, another round. This is, uh, this is quite fun. Yeah, no, I, I think we should do a, a whole session, on, an hour on just behavioral analysis. I really do. I think yeah. practitioners, providers, clients would all love to hear that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Let's plan for that. Uh, but uh, how to get uh, in, in touch with us, it's relatively easy, right? You go online to uh, www.rozin.com the word security.com, R-O-Z-I-N security.com. And uh, you can contact, uh, get in touch with us from there directly. Uh, we also have LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all those good things. And of course, we have, uh, my, my team is very responsive. So you can, you can find us on social media platforms. You can find us directly on our website. Um, uh, we have a great team of top-notch professionals who, uh, you know, take their job uh, more than just a job, more like a mission uh, and what they're, and they're here to, 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 you know, to do, to do good and make an impact in, in life. So they're, they take every single project, every single one of our clients as their own family. Uh, and uh, we truly care. Uh, we truly care about, about uh, everyone we work with. Um, so that's, that's, uh, it's, it is that. <laughs> Well, listen, Mike, I appreciate your time. It's always an honor. Uh, we love working with Rosen Security Consulting. Um, it, it's just, it's always an honor to work with you and pick your brain on things. Um, please reach out to Mike if, if, you, if you're new in the industry, if, if, if you have a question, behavioral detection question. Um, Syra, great program. Try to get involved with it. Um, we'll recommend it. You know, COVID's kind of, put a, put a damper on that. But on the other end of this, I, I think, I think everybody will, will need Syra a little bit more, Mike. So just because of, you know, behavioral attributes. So thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Um, that's a wrap. You've been listening to the North group podcast. We're security refined by intelligence. If you have questions for us, they can be emailed to info at tngdefense.com or visit our website at www.tngdefense.com. Don't forget to subscribe and stay safe.